the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo contributing editor Keith Cameron and Ian Rankin. Hello, gang. Hi. Oh, let's let's try Hi, that again. Um, my guests today are Mojo contributing editor Keith Cameron and Ian Rankin. Hello, gang. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I love that that second time was even was even worse than the first, but I'm gonna we're, we're gonna go with that. Um, <laughs> is, is, no, I know you because you're thinking I, I'm, not, I'm not expecting this kind of jollity from Andrew. What's going on? Um, Ian Rankin, or as he is otherwise known, Sir Ian Rankin OBE, is one of the world's greatest living crime writers, creator of the Groff Complex and now retired police inspector John Rebus, who has, since his first appearance in 1987, starred in, is it 24 novels now, Ian? If you say so. I've, I've, I've literally <laughs> lost count. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with 24 because I think they 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 named they now print it on Amazon when you can when you kind of look at the books <laughs> and it says novel 24. Ian is also the creator of three books starring divisive internal affairs cop Malcolm Fox, several standalone novels, ten short story collections, and one graphic novel. More recently, he completed the final novel of the late great Glaswegian crime writer William McIlvanny wrote the reality TV crime show Murder Island and penned a COVID play for Rebus in which the aging detective was played by his Dundee soul brother, Brian Cox. According to his strict timetable, he is currently working on another Rebus novel as we speak. Is that correct? No, sir, that is not correct. No, Um, what? When I was young and impoverished, I wrote two books a year just to survive. Then I went to one book a year because that's what readers want when it's a series but then as I got richer and more knackered uh, I went to a book every two years so this year is my fallow year and my wife has insisted that I take a year off so we can go traveling so no new projects this year oh that's fantastic news well I mean it's not fantastic news for people demanding yet more rebus but it's fantastic news for you and your um, your need for you know need for holidays yeah. So, Ian, I did. I, yeah, the, the, Andrew Neil, you know the the, the broadcaster Andrew Neil. Once uh, I can't remember if it was in print or on telly or radio. Called me Stakanovite, yeah, which I had to look up. But it means you're a really hard worker. Uh, you know, mostly on behalf of the state, but a really hard worker. And I, I've been very driven, especially during the years of COVID and after um, doing possibly too much. So it's nice to take a year off so I can listen to some music properly for a change. Fantastic. Well, it's absolutely lovely to have you on the show talking about music and and talking about listening to it. Now, the record you've brought in to talk about is Creatures of Light and Darkness by the late Scottish singer-songwriter Jackie Leaven. Um, and I think it's pronounced Leaven as in leaving without a G, released on Cooking Vinyl Records in 2001. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jackie Levin, not his real name. Um, named, he's named himself after a town in Fife, quite a rough town, actually, um, uh, near where he grew up and near where I grew up. So we are we are Fifers, both of us. And before we start, we should probably hear a little bit of, I've chosen the opening track to listen to, which is kind of, I like it because it kind of seems to contain 
all the contradictions that seem to exist within Jackie Levin's songwriting the, from the impression that I've got from listening to it. It's kind of a possibly autobiographical, possibly not, poetic, romantic, contradictory. It's a track called My Spanish Dad, written by Jackie Levin and released on Cooking Vinyl Records. I see him rocking in an old cortina as he makes his way to the auction room. Auction room in Lady Bank in the Howe Five in the afternoon. This is the way he liked to spend his time when time was his to spend at all. Ian. How and when did you first discover the music of Jackie Levin? Um, I was a late adopter, so it would it, it was possibly a review of an album in Mojo magazine. I think it was a print review of one of his albums. It mentioned that he'd grown up in Fife. It mentioned he was a singer-songwriter, um, possibly mentioned his kind of muscular narratives, his singing style, his great guitar playing. And I just was intrigued, so I rushed off to a record shop in Edinburgh uh, and I'm not sure I think it might have actually been uh, Shining Brother Shining Sister that I bought first I've got it here in front of me with a 9.99 sticker on it um, CD this stuff was only available in CD then as far as I can ascertain um, but yeah Creatures of, of Light and Darkness I mean I just grabbed it I mean what about that for a title Fantastic. for a crime yeah. writer if, you, if you've got a title I mean his titles are all kind of crime related Lovers at the Gun Club Fairy tales for hard men. You kind of know what you're getting. You know, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Um, but he'd reinvented himself several times as I, as I came to, to know. There wasn't much information about him. So the album was what I had. The review in the magazine and the album that I eventually bought and listened to was all that I had. But luckily for me, on his um, album sleeves, Jackie puts a lot of information or misinformation. I'm not exactly sure. He'll mention lists of bars that he hangs out in, but some of them will be completely fictitious um, with names that I cannot repeat on radio or <laughs> elsewhere, uh, which is why you know they're fictitious. One was in Dundee, but I won't tell you what it was called. Um, the quotes from poets, um, he loved to work with other people in different disciplines. Um, the, one of the songs in this album is actually his take on a poem by Robert Frost, so yeah, he was just it was a it was a cornucopia of goodness. And obviously one of the things is like he has you read this review, you're looking at the song titles, you're kind of taking in all this kind of self-mythology and kind of poetry. What was it like to actually sit and listen to the music? Did the music live up to the, you know, these garlands of myth that surrounded it? Yeah, it did. It did. Uh, I mean, his his lyrics are phenomenal. And so, that, you know, what I would do is sit there with the booklet and just actually be reading along the lyrics as I'm listening. The arrangements were fantastic and some of them were quite experimental. Some He's got moments of experimentation on the album. Um, he likes to collaborate with people. So there's a lot of other musicians coming and going. Uh, I mean, I guess famously on this album, it would be uh, David Thomas from Perubu. Uh, luckily, much later on, we might come to this, but I did actually tread the boards with Jackie and David Thomas in The Hague at the Crossing Borders Festival, and we did a gig together. Um, so I got to sit on stage for an hour and a half with David Thomas and somehow survive to tell the tale. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, song titles like 
exit wound, the sexual loneliness of Jesus Christ, Billy Ate My Pocket, Rainy Day Bergen Woman. You have to read on, as, as a reader would say. I want to play a little bit from um, the sexual loneliness of Jesus Christ, because to me, because I've I came to him relatively recently off the back of a brilliant um, feature in Mojo magazine, which you yourself contributed to by John Azelwood last year. And being absolutely honest, this was the first time that I'd encountered him. And the reason I think this 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 song, the sexual loneliness of Jesus Christ, kind of in a way captures the impression of Jackie Levin that I got is that this song, it could be a riddle, it could be a lament, it could be a love song, it could be a piece of rank self-indulgence, it, it could be the words of a sociopath, but the, it all exists within the same place. You know, you've got all these various different identities, not just identities of, of the songwriter, but identities of the song going on at the same time. Let's play a little bit of the song and then come back to it. This is The Sexual Loneliness of Jesus Christ by Jackie Levin on Cooking Vinyl Records. take on that song does that kind of fit anywhere with kind of how you see him you know this 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 kind of site of contradiction in a way yeah i mean there's there's a there's a there's a spiritual element to the song if you want to look for it uh, i guess that's evident just from the title of the song the sexual loneliness of jesus christ it's quite shocking i mean to write a song with that title i mean in some quarters would be seen as quite shocking then you've got the beautiful um singing of, of his of his partner deborah greenwood who often sang with him on stage um, singing the female part, and you, you know, and one of the la the last line, if not his last line, uh, I could smell blood in the ground. Yeah, uh, you know, and you're going, well, where are we now? Um, and uh, as you as you say, you know, was he influenced by Bob Dylan? I don't know. I mean, he comes from a folk background, um, uh, and and he. In the sixties, he was a he was a folky in in Fife and elsewhere. Then he sort of reinvented himself. Eventually, joined a band called Doll by Doll, who were quite abrasive and angry on stage. Made a couple of a couple of great albums, maybe two or three great albums. I can't remember. I've only got one, I think. Uh, and then again, reinvented himself as a sort of troubadour. The lyrics got rich, richer, um, and and more diffuse. So you weren't sure, as you say, you could spend your whole life. Um, reading his lyrics and trying to make sense of them. And that's one of the glories of his songs. I think the, the lyrics actually work if you're just reading them off the page. Not every artist has that, that gift. Absolutely not. Keith, when, when did you kind of come upon him or discover him? Well, <clears throat> I'd heard about him uh, through a colleague of mine. When I started working for Sounds magazine in 1988, uh, there was a guy there called Robin Gibson, who's from Paisley, and he was a massive Doll by Doll fan. And I'd only heard of that band. I maybe even even seen their adverts in the music press about sort of eight years sooner, eight years earlier than that. And um, I'd never seen Doll by Doll. I'm not even sure I'd heard them. But he, but Robin would always go on about Jackie leaving man. You know, you got you got to check him out. And I think this was around about the time when Jackie was doing some stuff with Glenn Matlock. But anyway, so so I had I had Robin banging on about this guy called Jackie leaving. And, and then I think in nineteen in sort of mid nineties, uh, a, a music publicist, the legendary Mick Houghton. Um, 
told me that Jackie Levin was back and he had a, he'd signed a solo deal with um, Cook and Vinyl Records and I should check him out. And I think I heard maybe the first album that was on Cook and Vinyl. Um, and I thought maybe the, I think at that point that the production kind of of it was a bit too lush and overbearing for my taste at that point, despite the fact that Jackie's voice seemed to be a thing of wonder, really. I could, I could see that already. And then it wasn't until, the, it was about 2001, I was working at Mojo by this point, and I was the reviews editor for a bit sort of tumultuous 12-month period. And in one of the many CDs that were piled on my desk, and Andrew, you'll remember, I, yeah, absolutely, vividly. Time. Too, too many CD, too many CDs, not enough time, and not enough patience on my part. But there was a Jackie Levin record, and it was, um, it was, it was the one that Ian's chosen oh, for us today. So I listened to that, and I was absolutely knocked out. I mean, I just couldn't believe that I'd not listen to this guy properly ever and and here was this here was this record and um what and an amazing voice and as, as ian's just eloquently described those those mysterious songs beckoning you in and once you're in you just can't really get out i don't think he's there's there's riddles and rhymes and you know such beautiful words and lovely melodies and uh and you can hear you know you can hear the the, the pain of a man's soul in a lot of these songs and um it's it's un, they're unfathomable at times and you don't you know you can you can dive as deep or as shallow in as as you like i think and and, and get something out of of this stuff and and thereafter you know i was you know i, I had my ears open and then of course um then ian started uh, banging the drum for for jackie leaving in his books and i think it was it was at flesh market close it was the first time that john rebus we the we we encountered John Reeves listening to Jackie Levin. Is that is that right? You know, I can't, I can't quite remember. It would have yeah, been around it, was, that it time. would have been around that time. And uh, what I didn't know was that Jackie read my books because um, we'd never had any correspondence yeah. or met by that at that stage. And uh, so yeah, I thought I like this music. Reeves would like this music. It's kind of music about it's fairy tales for hard men. It's about hard men who've got a soft center. It's about men who are trying to change. It's about men who know that they are bad. Um, they are they are fil- filled with guilt and remorse, but they can't do anything about it. They can't seem to change. All that sort of stuff. I thought, oh, Rebus would like this. So one night he's sitting at home listening to Jackie Levin. Jackie is on tour somewhere in Scandinavia, where he was hugely popular, much more popular than he ever was in the UK. Um, he's reading a book, and he sees himself mentioned in print. So he got in touch with my publisher, and they put us in touch with each other. And we first met. He was doing a midnight show, a solo show at Edinburgh during the Fringe that year or the year after and we met for the first time and uh and chatted away and eventually became friends and ended up working together but yeah it was it's part of that thing where like most crime writers i'm a frustrated rock star so i do try and mention as much music in the books as i possibly can and then after he passed away and i was reading his lyrics uh constantly and listening to his music a lot i just then got the idea for actually naming some of the books after lyrics of his or titles so i think standing in another man's grave uh, was the first one, which was a, a, a Mondegreen, because I'm terrible. I never hear the right lyrics. Uh, I've got to read them to actually know what's going on. Uh, and it was the line in Jackie's song was actually standing in another man's rain. Um, but I'd misheard it as grave, so I called the book that. And I've continued with that. And the latest one, Heart Full of Headstones, is also a line from Jackie's song, Single Father. So, yeah, um, he's had a huge influence, and he continues to have a huge influence on me. Do you, Ian, do you see, a, is there a sort of kinship between um, Rebus and Jackie, do you think, kind of uh, philosophically in any way? Or is there a, cer- a certain Pfeiffer mentality, perhaps, an outsider mentality? <laughs> I, I think there's that sort of that macho thing of, of having, to, having to look like you're a hard man in a hard world so that you don't get picked on. 
I think Rebus has always had that from his early days growing up. In, grew up in the mining towns of Fife. I mean, there are various Fifes. There's the Fife of St Andrews, which is kind of nice. The East Nuka Fife is all very nice and shishi and all the rest of it. But you've got these kind of hard working class villages that used to be full of pits and miners. Um, and that's sort of the world that Jackie inhabited when he was younger and certainly the world that I grew up in. And so Rebus comes from that world too. But he's got that sort of, you know, sitting at home, he's got that introspection, he's got that, oh, you know, I wish I could change the past. I wish I could change the things I did, the bad things I did, the terrible things I did. Trying to live with the guilt that I've got is hard. And to do that, I mean, you go and sit in bars and drink and you listen to other men usually around you and you watch. And Jackie has always had that, being, a, being a, a stranger in a strange land, watching, learning, stealing people's stories. Um, I mean, one of the, the, the songs on this um, album that we're talking about, uh, Hidden World of She, he says he was just, he was looking at the Danube and he could see this woman who was staring at the Danube and he was staring at her and he was wondering what, what she was thinking about. And it, it produced a beautiful song. Now, he says that on the album sleeve, that that was where he got the idea. He may be lying. Yeah. He's a great mythologizer. And many of the stories, if you ever get access to his live albums or his live recordings, you'll find in between songs all sorts of stories, many of which, of course, are untrue. And he would, he would, he would uh, embroider them and embroider them until they were rich pieces of storytelling that bore no relation to anything that happened in the real world. I'm Ian Rankin, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. This is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Ian. You formed this image of him from his songs, from his lyrics, and also, as you say, he was a great self-mythologizer. You know, there was that sense in which he, 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 you know, he could spin a yarn about himself. So what was it like to finally meet the man who you'd only known through these lyrics and also who you'd only know, even when he was talking about himself, he was creating a fiction. What was it like to finally meet? Well, because I, should, I probably should explain that you you then decided to to perform together, to work together on a show, didn't you? Yeah, well, the, fir- the first time uh, I saw him, uh, there were about eight of us in the audience in this old dilapidated church in the new town in Edinburgh and in a midnight show and out, out, out came this skinny huge guy wearing shorts and big thick socks and he sort of plugged in an acoustic guitar and I thought oh this must be the roadie because the only the, all I'd seen of Jackie Leaven were, were moody black and white pictures on his album sleeves where he was quite lithe long haired and everything um, and this 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 chap who came out on stage was was rather larger than I'd been expecting and it wasn't until he sat down and started playing I thought I think this is Jackie Leaven um, I don't think this is the roadie I think this is him and, then, of course, the voice, you know, as soon as as soon as soon he opened his mouth, he thought, oh, my God, yeah. Um, so that was slightly embarrassing from my part. But it just uh, – uh, but afterwards, he was signing and he was sort of sticking around talking to the fans and stuff. So we had a quick chat. And, our, you know, most of our communication was, was via emails and phone calls. Um, and, yes, he said he was doing a thing at Celtic Connections one year and would I like to go on stage and maybe read something from the Rebus books. And I said, well, why don't we do something a bit more than that? Why don't I write a story that actually uses some of the themes that I see in your songs? And you then write some new songs which reflect back on that story. So we did the show called Jackie Leaving Said, which we were intending to record live for an album. We came off stage at the end with a really buzzing because it had gone really well. Um, and the guy recording it said, I'm sorry, that didn't work. I didn't get any of it. Um, he said, can you go on stage and do it again? 
to an empty theatre? And we said, no, I don't think so, Paul. <laughs> well, luckily we'd been asked to do the show at the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh. Um, some I don't know if it's the following year or not. But anyway, we recorded that one and it did eventually come out on, on Cook and Vinyl. And it's a story I've often told, but we then went on tour because we had an album out and Jackie phoned me up and he said, what do you want on your rider? I said, what's that? He said, it's your backstage requirements. I said, I'm a writer. We're lucky if we get a bottle of water. I said, you do it. So I turned up at the Royal Festival Hall in London. We were sharing this huge dressing room. His side of the dressing room was festooned with stuff. Festooned. Um, my side of the dressing room, nothing. Uh, until this backstage guy kicked the door open and walked in and said, which one of you bleeps ordered a haggis? And Jackie pointed to me. Everywhere we went on that tour, one uncooked haggis would arrive in the dressing room because that was all he put my side of the rider. That's fantastic. I mean, let's... I hope I hope it was from McSween. Well, you know the the guy the guy in London said I had to go to Fortnum and Masons to get that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's noticeable listening to that show, the version that came out on the CD, is how very different the live version of Jackie Levin is to the one on record. There's a kind of that again, once again, they're different people. You know, there's a kind of there's an intimacy, the kind of the, the, there's some some kind some kind of um, the front gets dropped, you know, kind of. And also the other thing that really struck me when you're actually hearing just him just voice and guitar, which we haven't really touched on, is what an incredible guitar player he was. Yeah, he, an, an amazing uh, acoustic. I mean, I, I think I only ever saw him play acoustic guitar, but he was a very very gifted guitarist. Um, uh, I, this great booming voice, this very rich voice of his, um, I, but at the same time funny and witty between songs. I mean, he just he he held the any room he played, he held it in the palm of his hand. And people who got Jackie Levin really got him, and they would travel the world wherever he was going. They would travel with him, um, and he still, you know, they've been talking about putting on memorial gigs for him in Bergen and various other places in Scandinavia, Germany. He was very well thought of um it seemed like he just he found an audience outside the uk the uk he found it really hard i mean that first gig i went to as i say there were about eight people in the audience um and and it was a kind of, i find that I yeah that bizarre. I, 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 it, is, it is bizarre but you know we know this for, i mean you're all in the industry we know that quality doesn't always out Absolutely. One of the, I mean, one of the, yeah. the things that um, I wanted to ask about as well, He there is a song on that CD that he performed when you were on the road with him called The Haunting of John Rebus. Um, and I just wanted to ask you what it was like to hear kind of your character sung back to you in a way through, you know, the, the words and the images of, you know, another writer. Yeah, it was, I mean, what an honour, what an honour that was. Um, I never really, I mean, apart from the few gigs that we did together, I never saw him play it live. Uh, but yeah, it was, it, it, yeah, I mean, and he, got, he kind of captured something of Rebus as well, you know, lonely man in lonely rooms. Um, uh, his name's John Rebus, he's got the blues, I think is the, Canadian, is the, the hook. Uh, yeah, it was, it was lovely. And he did another song called... Um, Lindsay Doyle, which was all about Kirkcaldy, which was a, a town in Fife that both of us knew quite well. And he kind of summed up an era in Kirkcaldy as well, the kind of name checks, the Burma Ballroom, which was the sort of early discotheque and the, the cafes and listening to Jimi Hendrix on the on the uh, jukebox in the cafe and stuff. And it's just, uh, yeah, he, he never really forgot his roots. And there's a lot of, you know, he would, he, would choose, he would pick and choose from Scottish ballads and 
and other poets. I mean, he was also a world musician. I mean, he would work with musicians from all over um, and poets. And he would always want to bring people into the albums, bring people into the recordings, disparate people. And he would somehow make this mix work. One of the things that was fascinating about reading John Azelwood's feature is that it doesn't hold back on the more unpleasant aspects of Jackie's character, you know, that he kind of, he could be violent, he could be, you know, contrary. I mean, this is maybe kind of opening out into a bigger question of how we process information about the, you know, the musicians we like, but what was it like reading that and kind of taking on board all those kind of aspects of his character as a fan? Well, you know, I only knew him in his later life. Uh, what he was, he was, he was in a, a great relationship with Deborah Greenwood. He was happy. He was contented. Um, I never, I never saw the Mister Hyde emerge. He was always lovely, Doctor Jekyll. Whenever I met him, but even looking at the lyrics in his albums, you go, yeah, this is a guy who's who's had a few dark nights of the soul mm. and has often been collateral damage along the way. Um, so, there's, I mean, on this album, there's a song. Uh, uh, Billy Ate My Pocket, which is about basically a horse. Uh, and it, it manages to grab a bit of paper from the narrator's pocket. And the, the narrator's partner picks the piece of paper up and looks at it and says, who's Jane? Uh, because <laughs> on the piece of paper is yeah. obviously a woman's name and maybe a phone number. Yeah. Uh, and all Jackie says at the bottom in, in the lyrics is, uh, in the lyric sheet is um, based on a true story. Uh, but you can imagine it being a true story involving one Jackie leaving. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, songs about going home, and his mother's in tears because of the state that he's in, because he's been drinking too heavily. Um, there's a lot, yeah. There's a there's a a lot of channeling. Uh, I think goes on in his songs, which actually I think helped to make him a a better person. It was like a kind of form of psychotherapy for him. Yeah, another thing that that Mojo feature that John Azelwood wrote highlighted was <clears throat> Jackie seemed to have a kind of a magnetic appeal to mm. women. Um, um, you know, Helen Turner from the Style Council was uh, infatuated with him. And there's the story that Princess Diana, uh, <laughs> fluttered her eyelashes at him when, when they met, when, uh, when she became a patron of his, his drugs charity or something. I mean, did you ever see evidence of this, um, this uh, debonair side? Oh, I mean, hugely attractive. I mean, you know, uh, as a straight male, I found him hugely attractive uh, because he had presence, he had charisma. Um, he was a handsome man. He was a handsome man. Even in later life, yeah. he was a handsome man. Um, but but you got you know you but he was also he could be quiet he could be thoughtful he could be respectful but he could also be full of life he could be gregarious he could tell the best stories I mean the story he told me about the princess Diana I think he told it several times at gigs was that he was sitting next to her at a charity dinner because she, as you say she was patron of his of his drugs charity um, and and she leaned over it was a lunch actually a luncheon and she leaned over and whispered in his ear what are you doing later. And he sort of startled and can he sat back startled and she went, only joking. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. And of course, John Rebus, Ian, has um has also you know been romantically linked with uh with various women in, in, in the books. women that he might be considered not worthy of. I, I would, would I would say? say that Rebus's love life uh, has been fits and starts. Uh, I, I, he's, he's, yeah, never, nothing's ever lasted too long. Uh, once his marriage broke up, um, cause he was always married to the job. Um, and I just thought that's what readers want. They want their detective to be focused on 
focused on the crime, focused on the whodunit. They don't want them to be going out for dinner and having nice lovey-dovey drinks and um, smooching at the cinema and stuff. So we don't get much of that in Rebus, I don't think. Uh, but I think, yeah, again, he's charismatic. He's he's slightly dangerous. He's got the edge of danger, which I guess Jackie had as well. And I think that can be attractive yeah. to women. It can be attractive. an attractive feature is that you're just, there's always something slightly dangerous about the person you're with. And uh, yeah, I think all of that comes through. I mean, I, 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 I do think there are, there are I mean, although Rebus was well formed before I met Jackie Lee, and it's definitely, they do share some genetic material. There's a really brilliant um, Scottish documentary about uh, Jackie from, I think it's from around about the year 2000 from Scottish television. Um, and the thing that's really interesting about it related to kind of what we're talking about is you can see these different versions of him you can see the, the real man but you can also see the one who's you know he's telling the yarns who's telling the stories but there's one bit where he kind of almost kind of you know says that don't look for the truth in the lyrics because there's um he says um the meaning of his song isn't songs are isn't in the lyrics but in the cadence which you know i think is a kind of you know it's a nice kind of scottish thing and kind of almost that you're kind of you, you you're not hearing to the right thing if you're just listening to the lyrics you need to be listening to how the lyrics are delivered and kind of where he places the emphasis and things like that and i think that kind of that seems to be kind of a kind of clue to you know getting him and his songs i don't know what you think i don't think i ever really write about myself i put myself in the songs deliberately so the song has an image which is central to the way that the, the listener listens, so they can see me in the song. I don't really have that much connection, even if events in the songs are events from my life. Uh, they still just come from a kind of archetypal pool of events which are common to us all. So I'm never really that much in the song. The real place of uh, words in songs, I think, is the cadence. And that's something that's not particularly recognised, I don't think, by the listener, and certainly not by critics. Um, critics are very concerned, as, as are the people that buy my records, for instance, by what the words mean. Uh, the words in themselves don't have to particularly mean much. It's the actual cadence, and cadence is what's important in poetry as well. I love um, Russian poetry and I love American poetry, and I think they're incredibly similar. And what's similar is the cadence. Obviously, the words take you into the images once again, and the images are where we all live. We all live in images all the time. That's all we have is images. So poetry is the conductor of images. I mean, it's, that could be true, but... A while ago, I was asked um, to do something. Uh, it was James Yorkston, the musician who does an occasional live night, and he said, Ian, would you do something? Could it involve Jackie Levin's music? And what I did was I just plucked out some of my favourite lyrics and just read them, and James Yorkston noodled a bit of acoustic guitar in the background while I did it, and it was a huge success, and I've done it a couple of times since. And the lyrics work yeah. without the music. They work, they work without the music and they work without Jackie's voice. They stand alone. They're, they're strong enough to stand alone and they're strong enough for other people to interpret them because he was a brilliant, brilliant wordsmith. The, to call him a frustrated poet do, does him down because he was a poet. You know, that there is a sense that he, you know, he was kind of steeped in poetry. He read poetry and he's, he's writing poetry in these lyrics, isn't he? I mean, it's very, you know, kind of it's a... It's a common, you know, it's a common point that, you know, music lyrics aren't poetry. They're not written to be read as mm. poems. They're not written to work as poems. Mm. But well, I mean, that, the, the event I did with him at the, the Hague, the Crossing Borders Festival, he had the Irish poet Kieran Carson 
sadly no longer with us on stage with him, actually just reading our poetry. He loved being around poets. He loved working with poets. I mean, one of the songs in this album is Robert Frost, the American poet. It's, it's his words, but it's Jackie singing them. Um, on the back cover of the album, he quotes from Rainer Maria Rilke. You know, not too many singer-songwriters would have Rainer Maria Rilke on the back of their album sleeve. Um, he just, he was, he was... I don't know. He just had a kind of magpie mind, yeah. and he would find inspiration everywhere. But he did. He 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 had a great um, appreciation of good poetry, and I think he tried to write good poetry in his lyrics. But I mean, I really kind of appreciate you, kind of you know, bring, bringing this album on because, as I say, he's somebody who I wasn't sure of in the past, and kind of you know, and, and sort of stayed away from, and kind of and kind of what Keith was saying about like the the early doll by doll sound production wise, it kind of wasn't something that drew me in, but you realize that kind of, I got hooked on the lyrics. I got hooked on his guitar playing, you know, and kind of, and just, Mm. and also that version of him performing live where there's, you know, there's kind of, you're hearing this other version of him. I mean, he, you know, to quote somebody else, he contains multitudes, you know, (laughs) this is Bob Dylan recently said of himself as well, you know, and is um and that's a that's a Robert Frost line as well, isn't it? Do I contradict uh, myself? I think it's Walt Whitman. Oh, it's Walt Whitman. You're right. It's Walt Whitman. Do uh, I contradict myself? I contain uh, multitudes. Yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've got I've got Rebus says that in one of the early books, and I thought, no, Rebus would not know Walt Whitman. <laughs> that's a mistake, Ian. That's that's you. That's not your character. Uh, yeah, I, I think we should say to listeners that it's it, it can be hard to track his stuff down. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it didn't come out in vinyl. It came out in CD only. Uh, small runs. I mean, Cook and Vinyl, God bless them, we're bringing it as lots of albums every year because he yeah. was giving them lots of albums every year, um, and they really stood up for him when they need to be stood up for uh but yeah the stuff a lot of it's out, out you know you can't find it I, I tried streaming some there's not easy to find it even for streaming purposes yeah. if you look online on places like you know on the internet you will find bits and pieces you'll find live gigs you'll find the occasional song um and hopefully many more to come and people will rediscover them and i'll do my utmost to keep his candle burning and luckily the album that you chose creatures of light and darkness is available to stream it is on kind of stuff like spotify and everything so you can go in there and and, and lose yourself in that album that's i mean yeah an abs- absolute joy to kind of fall fall into his kind of um his strange and romantic world you're listening to the mojo record club rapid record scratch and switch into new music keith what new album have you been listening to this week um, well, my new album of this week is uh, Gigi's Recovery, which is the second LP by Dublin Quintet, The Murder Capital. Now, I first heard this band in 2019, around the time of their debut, When I Have Fears, uh, which had been enthusiastically talked up by their friends, Fontaine's DC, who I'd seen uh, playing with idols and uh, became a, a firm fan of. You could tell that both these groups were cut from a similar cloth, you know, intense, literate, existential searching, Um, as well as an exhaustive knowledge of the works of Joy Division. But to my ears, the murder capital lacked, kind of lacked Fontaine's DC's knack for kind of leavening the load with humour. And they were impressive uh, on this record, When I Have Fears, as most records produced by Flood are. Um, But for me, it didn't really offer that much in the way of transcendence. But this new record, therefore, is is a revelation. Um, It's still preoccupied with the heaviness of being, um, it's a kind of concept album, uh, 
the first track is called Exist and the last track is called Existence. So that kind of <laughs> indica- indicates where they're, where they're hanging out. Um, but Gigi's recovery is really full of kind of deep uh, velveteen colours, like a Goya painting instead of skulking in monochrome corners like the, the, the debut did, I think. Um, it's aided by another noted producer, John Congleton, and the band kind of flesh out the grind manoeuvres and um, they get their uh, party like it's 1989 head on. It's like a Bad Seeds Depeche Mode drinking <laughs> contest. And um, for me, the, one of the real picks, the real standout elements of the record now is singer James McGovern. He's really blossomed as a singer, I think. He's, uh, he's almost like a crooner in the story to post-punk <laughs> Irish tradition. And in particular, I'm hearing definite notes uh, of the late, great Cahill Coughlin all over this one. And uh, for my money, that can only be a good thing. Okay, let's let's hear a track. This is um, "Return My Head," uh, written by the Murder Capital and released on Human Season Records. I had to realign to begin to survive. I gaze to the satellites. No spare change in promise. Ian, were you familiar with the band The Murder Capital before we um, we politely asked you to give this record a listen? I knew the name. Uh, that was about it. I'd probably read about them in the music press, but hadn't uh, hadn't listened to them. So it was a pleasure to listen to this album and go back and listen to their first album and and look at the the, the leap that they've made. I like it when a when a band change; they don't just stick in the same groove. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Keith's mentioned Joy Division, uh, birthday. I mean, I would, I would say the Cure all over this. Uh, yeah. In fact, when when I when I when I, yeah. when I yeah. grabbed the lyrics and just read the lyrics without the music, I thought if you presented these lyrics, any one of these lyrics, to a music fan, they would go, "That's the Cure, isn't it?" Yeah. Uh, because they're cut very much from the same. I mean, the Cure of pornography and disintegration, disintegration. That sort of era. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the, yeah. The doom, yeah. The doom, doom era. era, and you know, the the the, the lead singer. Uh, had been reading the wasteland uh, before they came to, to to make the album, and yeah, there's a there's a sense of like this is an album that's going to be listened to in a lot of darkened teenage bedrooms uh, by people very much the way I was when I was a teenager, and they're just going to they're going to live it to bits. Mm. And I, w- I would be very excited to hear a lot of these tracks live because it seemed to me that live they will get an extra lift. Um, I think it is very well recorded, but some of them you could tell that's going to be a banger. Yeah. Uh, when you when in a live set, that one is yeah. going to be an absolute banger. Um, and the stuff about existence and exist, I think it's it's you can sit and pour over the lyrics. You can um, you, you you can look for the the depth that is definitely there. Uh, it's not a bleak album. It's it's quite sparse at times, and then it does get anthemic and and uh, other times. It, yeah, I think it's a I think it's, I think they're a great band, and I do think they've they've moved on uh, a, a, a few light years from the first album. Yeah, I mean, the point you make, Keith, about James's voice is, I think, integral because I think kind of it is a voice that has come on leaps and bounds in the first album. I feel like it's still it's still growing. It's still kind of almost like trying to, you know, find its place. And there are points in the production where it kind of 
it just edges a little bit in, into, you know, kind of that area where you go, I'm not sure if I'm enjoying the sound of his voice right now, but it's kind of, I think going back and listening to the early album, the, you know, the degree to which they've kind of grown as a band in that space. I think that was 2019, wasn't it? So, yeah. No, it's been a lot, a lot of growing since then, as, 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 as Ian says. I mean, I think that the, um, the intensity was always there, but it's been it's so much more digestible now. I think, and it's so more so much more relatable. But the point about the the cure is 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 very much apparent. Um, and and also with the you know the second Fontaine's DC album, A Hero's Death, which really kind of dug into their kind of into the into those dark dark corners, and they were huge. They're huge fans of the cure of that of that of the pornography seventeen seconds era and stuff so um that, that's that's very evident too but yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this this lot live because i've never seen them play yet fontaine fontaine's were a revelation for me when i when i saw them live that made that everything kind of made sense when i saw that sort of you know that that force and uh the the power of of of, of green the, the vocalist just pacing the stage like a like a caged animal you know like uh somebody said they were a bit like uh joy division fronted by <laughs> liam gallagher um, that's a fantastic recommendation isn't it that's really good yeah well who, who who wouldn't want to see that and i noticed that there are two books on the on the history of goth coming out this year there's one by the crime writer kathy unsworth has um has written one and also uh you know punk scholar john robb has got one coming out and they're both kind of vying for attention and it feels like you know those kind of those reference points kind of seem quite vivid at the moment don't they that kind of that is the era that people are going back to that kind of you know well we're living in dark we're living in dark times yeah why would people want to go back to the time of margaret thatcher and strikes and poverty and why, why possibly would they see the connection to now yeah i'm ian rankin and you're listening to the module record club um okay my album of the week is the new one by john kale it's called mercy and um, I actually interviewed uh, John for the next issue of Mojo. Spoke to him just before Christmas for a Mojo feature. And interviewing him is a, is a kind of, it's as curious an experience as listening to this album. This is his first collection of new songs since 2012's Shifty Adventures in Lucky Wood. And as Victoria Segal pointed out in a brilliant review of the LP in Mojo, it's a really kind of nebulous, kind of chimerical record. It's, Hooks and melodies are kind of shrouded in these ghostly atmospheres and effects. And he's got, you know, he basically brought in these collaborators like Animal Collective, Laurel Halo, Way's Blood, Fat White Family. But he's almost kind of brought them as as instrument in as instruments or colors to add to add to the record. You know, their their, their clear identity as, as musicians is kind of pushed to one side, and he's brought them in as kind of, you know, these these kind of weird brush strokes of of color. But behind all these kind of colors and shrouds, which is kind of one of the reasons why I think it's an album that kind of bears repeated listening, you kind of find these specifics. There's these themes of redemption and forgiveness and compassion and bits of his own autobiography. There are songs about Nico. There are songs about his childhood. And it kind of, going back to what we were saying about um, Jackie Levin, there's a kind of kale, there's something that feels like a puzzle or a mystery something unfinished that kind of the listener has to make sense of. Um, let's listen to the most recent single, which is Story of Blood, featuring Wise Blood, written and arranged by John Cale. Um, 
and released on Domino Records. And just before we play it, I want to say, if you look at the comments underneath this song on YouTube, uh, there's a debate going on over whether it's appropriate that John Cale should be using the hi-hat patterns from trap music, that sort of unique subgenre of rap. And I wonder what other 81-year-old musician uh, generates those kind of debates about their songs. Anyway, this is um, Story of Blood featuring Velvet Underground album when yeah. I was a teenager, um, and yeah, then the, the solo career um, fits and starts. I would say I remember buying the twelve-inch single uh, "Head of Gabbler." Yeah, uh, in the era of punk because um, it was a twelve-inch single in a picture sleeve. So of course you buy it, and uh, and it was an extraordinary, just three extraordinary tracks. Um, mixed though, because I mean sometimes I I, I, I was going to say sometimes I enjoy listening to them, sometimes I don't. I don't know if enjoyment's quite the word. It's a hard listen. This is mm. yet another John Cale album that is a hard listen. Yeah, uh, I've really, I've hands up, I've only managed to listen to it once all the way through. Um, but but yeah, but this and he's got all these guests, all these stars who these younger generation coming along, and yet it still sounds like nothing except a John Cale album. Yeah. Um, as you suggested yourself, Andrew, they're kind of subsumed in the John Caleness of it. And no true tracks are the same. You're never quite sure where it's going to go next. Uh, the Nico song could be a song about Nico, but there's not much Nico in it, uh, as mm. far as I can hear. Um, it's got the most amazing closing song. I thought the last song on it, um, Out Your Window, was the best song. Astonishing, yeah. It's, it, quite unfemic. You can be singing along and tapping along. He played the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh, quite a small venue recently, and I didn't get to see him. I think it was either sold out or I was away. I forget which. Um, and, I, and I've never seen him live. Uh, so that's a, that's a lacuna on my part. But as someone who's played a role in popular music down the decades, I mean, he's he's still up there and he's still making challenging music, which yeah, is amazing. It's astonishing. And I think what's interesting about him is he does have this weird relationship to his own music. I think that if you kind of go back and listen to his first solo album, Vintage Violence, you know, and kind of throughout and stuff like on like Paris 1919 and Fear and everything, he can write a straight ahead romantic pop song. He can do it, and he can do it incredibly easily. And I think he's aware of that. And there's something about him that fears that, that wants to put a you know a kind of a stick in the spoke of the you know the bicycle that he's on. You know, kind of he wants to kind of throw in that kind of. And obviously, he kind of you know was you know sort of learns at the feet of people like Lamonte Young and. John Cage. And I think that's always there, that kind of rogue elements that he wants to throw into the song and kind of so you're kind yeah, of... So, I mean, he's the, the, the closest I can think is someone like Scott Walker. Yeah. Uh, who who starts off, you know, doing the top 10, the poppy, poppy songs, but that's but it wants to challenge himself and wants to challenge yeah. his listeners. And it's never going to be content. Yes. And it's never going to be pigeonholed. And you get that with John Cale, I think. I think that's a really good comparison point. Keith, have you had much chance to listen to this record? There's some amazing singing on it by John Cale, and then there's some 
potentially amazing singing on it by John Cale. It had just been completely warped and you know subsumed, as you said, by by the surrounding by the surrounding noise. Um, it's almost like he wants to sabotage his own his own music. Um, and, and I guess you know he has been doing that off and on all his uh, for, the, for the last you know. 60 years or whatever you know it's as you said he's perfectly capable of writing a beautiful love song and then yeah. he wants to chop its head off like a chicken <laughs> like the chicken he'd he beheaded at the uh, the greyhound in croydon in 1977 or whenever it was that 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 fabled gig but there's but some of the songs on this new record i think the one that the, the best ones are the ones where there are no named collaborators there's a couple of songs weirdly that i was reminded of the blue nile um no, uh, noise of you and i think either night crawling or not not the end, not of, the the end of the world completely yeah. had me in ha, had me in mind of, of paul buchanan and singing over a kind of you know mid-paced sort of you know trudge into the down down a long street into the into the void you know it's um quite quite be- you know spellbinding stuff and i think it's a really compelling record and i think one that will that will bear uh, returning to again Is- again and again and i you know i'd love to, i'd love to see john Kerr live again i've only ever seen him um a couple of times, and uh, one of which was with the Velvet Underground, yeah. so that was a bit strange. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, a remarkable, a remarkable man and a remarkable singer. He doesn't really. I don't think he has. He doesn't have a straight take on anything, though, does he? I mean, I, I, I one time I, I mean, I met, him, I met him a couple of times. One was to interview him with the Velvets, and the other one time was it was a Mojo Awards in two thousand and four or five or something, and uh, I was assigned the task of. Um, chaperoning John Kalen for the length of time it was going to take him to go from his table up to the stage to receive an award and then you know usher him away again and stuff to make sure he didn't get lost and uh, so I sort of met up with him and said look this is what you got to do and he was like saying so so who's giving me the award and I said well it's going to be Steve Lamack and he went who's he <laughs> and I said so I had to explain who's, who's Steve Lamack the um, renowned BBC uh, alternative music guru was and then I had to point to him where the stage was. And he sort of says, okay, well, we're going to do it like this. And he sort of basically, he planned out a route that he then talked me through, that he was going to move his way through the tables and then go out the door and then come <laughs> back in and get, you know, this this elaborate, and he'd, he'd obviously been hatching this sort of, you know, yeah. thing in his mind. And then when, when the time came, he kind of did it as a, almost like a sort of gorilla move. He sort of dodged around a couple of tables, like sort of got down on the floor and sort of crawled almost on the, along the floor. So you turned the whole thing into a almost like an art piece, bizarre. It's magnificent. It, I am. Um, I think I was. It was at the same event that I am um, because my my late wife Colette was a huge John Cale fan, and so I said that I was going to be at this award ceremony with John Cale, and, and she said, "Oh, you know, I know you don't normally get people's autographs, but could you get John Cale's autograph for me?" And I said, "Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I'll try." And um, and I went up to him and I said. Um, you know, my wife's a huge fan of get this Oscar. And, you know, she says she, she absolutely adores the sound of your voice, you know. And he just kind of leaned forward as if he was leaning into a mic and he said, well, I hope you're eating the best. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of in a way, kind of what you you know, kind of it felt like something expertly prepared, you know, kind of. The, and I think that's it. I think he finds this stuff easy and easy is boring for him. Yeah, and going back to what we were kind of saying about um, and the points we we're making about um, Jackie, um, Ian, he's, you know, what remains in the end is the enigma. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the, the mystery is kind of part and parcel of, of him as a, an artist. Yeah, I, 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 
I remember, you know, first hearing the Velvet Underground and you go, okay, it's Andy Warhol, it's very New York, it's experimental, it's art scene. Hang on a minute, it's a Welsh guy. Yeah. What's, what's, how does a Welsh guy end up in the Velvet Underground? Um, and and, and he, he just he brought something to that band. He really did, didn't he? And uh, I mean, not just the, some of the vocals that he did, but the kind of, he just stretched their sound. He yeah. really did. And, and he brought a kind of yeah. classical influences in and... It was it was it was a wonder to behold, and um, and and yeah, I mean, after that, his solo career was yeah, I mean, some you just look at some of the album sleeves and you go, wow, this guy, a scary looking guy, he's wearing a hockey mask, um, and looks like he's about to commit violence on you, and the word violence might be in the title of the album anyway, um, and he could write a straight ahead rock song and get you and get you up and boogie, and he could write a, a very lush romantic song, he could write a song like Head a Gabbler. Which seems to bear no relation at all to the play by Ibsen, because I know that because I've I poured over the lyrics as an English literature student. I went, "What's this all about?" Um, <laughs> and uh, but but yeah, it's a great song. It's a terrific song. And and yeah, you know that song, which is a big anthemic song. And you turn the, the, the vinyl over and you play a song on the other side called I think um, Chicken Sh One T, uh, which is just a kind of raucous rocker. Um, yeah. Which you know which take, takes the, the melts your eyeballs. So yeah, as you say, someone a contradiction. Someone who's never been happy to be pigeonholed. Someone, someone who's probably just so restless that he's never made an album he's totally happy with. Yeah. Um, probably never written a song he's totally happy with. So he has to try again. It's the old Samuel Beckett: try again, fail, try, fail better. You know, if there's been, I think there's, if there's been a theme from today, it's kind of it is that sense of, you know the artist who will just you know the artist who is finds it easy to be creative but also easy to to fuck up their path towards creativity you know yeah, it reminds me a bit of t.s Eliot was once asked by a student what a, a specific line meant in his poem ash wednesday and they, they quoted the line to him and he just quoted the line back to them um, that's all you can do as an artist is just, you know, it's up to you to decide what it means. Yeah. I don't know what it means. Um, I've actually just finished reading a book about the writing of the wasteland. Maybe I should pass it on to the singer of the, uh, the murder capital. Um, cause it was absolutely fascinating about the fact that, that Elliot hadn't a clue what he was doing. I don't think he was doing it. He was just writing a poem that would eventually yeah. sort of change the world. Yeah. We kind of place kind of intent on these people as if kind of they've, you know, it's kind of like what you're saying about, you know, when you write a Rebus novel, there's that assumption that you know who done it at the start of the novel, you know, and you're going. I never go, do. I never, yeah. I never know who did it at the start. And uh, and often I don't know what the theme of the book is until someone tells me. Yeah. Um, you know, what the underlying theme, what the, the kind of deep structure of the book is. It's usually when a reader or a fan says, oh, I think this is a book about, and I go, yeah, actually, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I like that surprise. I like the fact that the art will surprise me, that the, that the story itself has a structure that I'm not aware of while I'm writing it. I'm just kind of hanging on for a grim death while it takes me where it wants to go, which isn't necessarily where I want it to go. Brilliant. I'm very happy, happy with the way this has ended. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Ian. You have been listening to Ian Rankin, Keith Cameron, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. I hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in and look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club.
I'm always a Prynne Laws boy.